Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. In the mid-1800s, there was a German arms manufacturer. They made bullets and guns and mortars in the mid-1800s. Unfortunately, uh, one of the two brothers who worked in this factory to make gunpowder and other chemicals uh, to create these weapons died in an accident. And so the other brother decided that he was going to find uh, what would be the best solution, what was the, the best thing for them to manufacture. And so Alfred Noble, who we know today because of the Nobel Prize, developed nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin was, at the time, the absolutely most explosive compound humankind had ever created. And not only that, it was incredibly volatile. Uh, Alfred Noble's uh, manufacturing plant where they made their weapons exploded and burnt to the ground twice. And they rebuilt it and started making more nitroglycerin. In fact, for a long time in the United States of America, the transport of nitroglycerin was illegal. Because when they moved some, they used it to blow up mountains to clear ways for the railway. When they shipped some into the port of San Francisco, 14 people died as the Wells Fargo branch in San Francisco exploded as they tried to unload the ship with just three small crates of nitroglycerin. And so the man who we named the Nobel Peace Prize after was in fact, in much sorts of irony, an arms dealer. But there's something more ironic than that about the story of Alfred Nobel. Because on his deathbed, as he was struggling at the end of his life with his health, he was prescribed a drug to help his heart function properly. This drug that Alfred Nobel was prescribed to make his heart function properly was nitroglycerin. You see, nitroglycerin is not just an incredibly destructive chemical compound. It is also a compound that is still used today in the treatment of certain heart ailments. It is a substance that on the one hand explodes if you even bump the crates the wrong way, And yet as a substance, when taken in the right dosage, clears the passages of your heart so your blood can pump better. It is volatile and destructive. It is healing and helpful. As we continue to look at the seven deadly sins, as we look at the sin of lust, one of the things that we find is that sex is in so many ways similar to nitroglycerin. It can be helpful and healing. It can be destructive and volatile. 
You see, as much as we look at these seven deadly sins, no sin more than lust has seeped into our culture and the way we do things. Think about it this way. What's the best way, according to the advertisers, for Carl Jr.'s to sell us hamburgers? Now, Carl Jr.'s is what they call Hardee's out on the West Coast. But if you remember three or four years ago, the way that they decided to sell us Hardee's or Carl's Jr. hamburgers was to put a model in a bikini writhing on top of a sports car because obviously that's going to make me want a hamburger. Why? Because sex sells. Think about this. Uh, Most of us uh, have never registered a domain name, have never claimed the name of an address on the internet. To do that, you go to a domain registry site. Most of you have no idea the name of any domain registry sites, except for one. You probably know GoDaddy.com. Why? Because they decided that the best way for us to remember that GoDaddy.com is the place to go when you need to register your .com was by putting sexually charged commercials into the Super Bowl. And guess what? It works. What's the only place you know of if you want to register, I've got a brilliant idea.com. The place that immediately comes to your mind is GoDaddy.com. It is an adage that sex sells. And we, we do this because we know that sex is a drive, is a desire that is common to us as humans. And for some of us, we want to just reduce any ideas about sex down to that base level. We want to take sex and we want to make it, as the the band The Bloodhound Gang said, that you and me are nothing but mammals. So let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. The reason why that lyric rings in our ears is not just because of the catchy phrasing of it, but because of how that is what our culture wants us to do. Our culture wants us to reduce sex to simply being an urge. We've even reduced it to the idea of an appetite. Just like I I need to get something to drink, I need to eat something, we want to put sex on that same level. We make it into an appetite. Or the other side of this is the idea of the, the hookup economy right? That we are out here and we're just trying to find someone for whom we can hook up with. And there are some who are able to do this well, and there are some who are not. This has given rise in our culture to the concept of the incel. Uh, Many of us hadn't heard that term before a few years ago. Uh, Some of us still haven't, but it's the idea of those who are involuntary, involuntarily celibate. This is a a large crowd on the internet. It's oftentimes associated um, with sort of hackers and hacktivism. And it's those who say that the world has an economy of sex and I am poor against my will. So I'm an involuntary celibate. All of this are ways that our culture has woven sexuality, has reduced sexuality to an appetite, to an economy, to those who have and those who do not have. It's a way of reducing sex to being less than what it is. But there's another side of this as well, isn't there? Those who make too big of a deal of sex, those that are consumed with the thought of sex. We see this definitely in religious circles, don't we? If you're of a certain age, you are very well familiar with the sort of religious 
purity culture. Some of you signed true love weights cards when you were teenagers. Some of you kissed dating goodbye as a means to protect yourself and to remain pure. The church has been for a long time obsessed with the idea of a purity culture. But what has happened is that has in a way become its own obsession with sex, hasn't it? And on the other side of that, you have those who are non-religiously engaged with this. Think about the covers that are, that are covered, the magazine covers that are covered when you go to Publix, right? Cosmo, Maxim, magazines that tell you how to have the most out-of-this-world sex advertised there on the cover. Did you catch that, though? Out-of-this-world, that's, that's the language of transcendence. That's, that's the language of religion. See, while some of us have made, have made sex no big deal, others of us have made it into the world of everything to us. And then there's the topic of porn. A multi-billion dollar industry. They, there's some statistics that say, I read that 70% of all non-Netflix video traffic on the internet is pornography. Some of you guys remember just a, just a few weeks ago on the 13th of March, Facebook and Instagram went down, right? Some of you who are on Facebook and Instagram a lot, some of you who work on Facebook with your jobs know that those went down. When that happened, the hours that Facebook and Instagram were down, the largest porn site in the world saw a 20% spike in traffic on just those days, on ju- in just those hours. That also should tell us something about the way that we use social media. There's something else broken in there, but we're not going to go there today, right? The latest statistics say that inside the church, two in three men and one in six women have struggled with porn this month. We're not special. Those would be true of us too. So I think it's safe to say That whether we think about sex as something that's no big deal, whether we think of sex as something that's everything, whether we think of porn as no big deal, wherever we find ourselves, I think we can all say that sexuality is something that's around us, that inundates us in our culture. And for those of us who are Christians, it's something that we struggle with. Because the biblical sexual ethic says that that marriage is between a man and a woman and sex is only supposed to be had within the bounds of that marriage. That sexual activity is only for marriage. And no matter what our views are on a lot of that, I think if that's the bar, I think that most of us would look at that and say that I fall short. That I fall short of that bar. And I think this is made even more dramatic with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. So I want to read these words to you, but I'd like you to stand as I do read these words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You have heard it said, that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. City Church, these are the words of Jesus spoken nearly 2,000 words ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As we sort of hear these things about sex, as we sort of let those statistics, let those ideas that permeate our culture wash over us, and then we hear the words of Jesus, the seriousness and gravity that he gives to it, what we find is that we are more gripped by lust than we want to admit. And for most of us, because of that, we are resigned to the quiet shame and self-loathing that accompanies it. We're more gripped in lust than we want to admit. It has wrapped itself around our minds more than we want to tell anyone else. And so we're resigned to a quiet sort of shame and a silent sort of self-loathing. You see, lust is desires and activities that fall short of the biblical sexual ethic. Anything that falls short of that high bar of the biblical sexual ethic falls into this category. Now, when we talk about lust, there are other types of lust, aren't there? We can lust after money. We can lust after things. But as we look at the seven deadly sins, we see that those things are covered in other places. We talk about greed and envy. And so when we talk about lust and the seven deadly sins, we're really talking about sexuality. And what happens is, for most of us, when most of us hear this idea of the high bar of the biblical sexual ethic, if we are brave, we admit that we don't live up to it. But what our hearts do then is often something very sneaky. Because our hearts will go, yes, I don't live up to the biblical sexual ethic, but they don't either, and they're worse than me. We are quick to go, yes, I don't live up to this, but look over there, there's somebody worse than me. Think about this in terms of of children, right? How many times has a, a child been corrected and said, well, yes, yes, I did throw my food, but he threw more food. Yes, yes, I did. I did do this thing wrong, but but my brother, but my sister did more wrong than I did. We are quick to try to deflect what we do wrong by pointing at people who do much worse things than I do. So we say, think about this when it comes to religious self-righteousness within the church. Think about this when it comes to religious self-righteousness in the church about sexuality. How quick have Christians been to ignore our sin and point out the sins of others? And, and let's be honest as a church. Let's be honest as a church in America. How quick has the church been to ignore our own sins and discriminate against those who experience same-sex attraction? You see, we use this as a deflection method. We use this as a method not to deal with our own sin. 
And so we look around and we go, ah, yes, there's another sinner. I'm going to say that their sins are worse than mine. When all of our sins are things that fall short of the biblical sexual ethic. No matter what category we find ourselves in. We are quick to deflect. We are quick to point at others. And we are quick to try to cover our tracks. Because the thing about lust is that lust creates in us a shame and isolation cycle. For some of you, this is how you have experienced it. For some of you, you have experienced it, that you, that you engage in lust, that you use pornography. And then you feel shame over what you've done. And so in that shame, you feel like you are alone and that no one will accept you. And so what do you do? You isolate yourself from others. You take yourself out of relationships. You hide from others. And in that isolation, what do you find yourself longing for? More connection. How do you feel that connection now that you're isolated? By going further down this shame cycle. You see, for many of us, that cycle of sin, of shame for our sin, of isolation, of doubling down, of keeping going, is the story of our life more than we want to admit. This is something that plagues us, church. This is something that is on us in so many ways. But there's also a way that we experience this if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You see, for some, you hear this idea, you hear me uh, state the biblical sexual ethic, and you say, what an archaic and repressive ethic. What an old-fashioned way of reading the Bible. After all, me using pornography doesn't hurt anybody. Let's ignore all the statistics that have accompanied, that, have, that we have seen about it. No, 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 it's fine. It doesn't hurt anybody. Or maybe that we're just humans. This is just a natural urge. After all, it's just an appetite. Except it's not. Because we know there's something more to it. Or maybe for some of us, the way that we deflect and the way that we deal with our losses by saying, well, well, aren't there bigger problems to be dealt with? Who cares if I break the biblical sexual ethic? There are mass murderers out there. There are, there's, there's the growing global warming. And so we take the eyes off of our sin. Whether we do that through self-righteousness, whether we do that through deflection, or whether we do that by sort of running away from it, all of us, when we look at this high bar, find ourselves guilty. And God comes along and he begins to talk to us. Jesus speaks and he says, look, I want you to be willing to take radical solutions to this. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eyes offend you, pluck them out and throw them away. That is a pretty radical statement. Wouldn't you agree? And most of the time, most of us go, well, he, he didn't really mean it, though there have been people in the, throughout the history of the church. One of the church fathers, his name was Origen, decided to take this very literally, and so he dismembered himself to try to deal with his lust. But Judy found out that it didn't work, because lust is a problem in our heart long before it's a problem below our belt. 
Our lust problem is not a problem that starts below our waist. It's a problem that always starts in our heart. And what Jesus is saying is we need to take radical measures. We need to be willing to talk about our lust the way that an alcoholic talks about alcohol. What happens when you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? It's sort of a trope in our day, isn't it? My name is, and I am an alcoholic. It's been nine years since my last drink. Do you see at least a little bit the, the dissonance of saying, somebody saying, I'm an alcoholic, it's been nine years since my last drink? But what are they saying in those moments? When they say that, what they're saying is, I am an alcoholic and I must be constantly vigilant because even though it's been nine years since my last drink, I could throw it all away tomorrow. City Church, this is the way that we must treat our hearts. This is the seriousness that Jesus gives to it. I know this because this is something that I must say, that I'm a recovering porn addict. That left to myself, I'm going to go in that direction. I don't stand before you as the righteous one who has all the answers. I stand before you as somebody who needs others. Because more than anything else, City Church, this is a sin that requires others. Requires community for us to battle. Because isolation only leads us further and further and further into lust. One of the other things that God says is that God is the avenger of those of us who lust. As much as we want to think that it's just about us, that it doesn't hurt anybody, God says, no, I'm the one who sees, and I am the one who avenges. And so we hear these words, and most of us hear them, and we are quick to say yes. If we stop the sermon here, what we would find is probably two-thirds of us men, probably one in six women, right now, are struggling with a bit of shame. We're looking at our lives going, my life has not been the story of redemption from this. My life has been a story of struggle. And if we leave ourselves here, if I just tell you to go be better, I am missing absolutely the point of Christianity. Because think about Jesus. Jesus lived his entire life without lust. You know, a few years ago, there was a, a movie and a book that was a huge cultural phenomenon called The Da Vinci Code. And while on the one hand, it was this sort of outlandish, Indiana Jones-style tour through all of these biblical stories, one of the most interesting revelations, sort of the big reveal at the end of the book is, oh yeah, actually Mary Magdalene was Jesus' girlfriend, and they had kids together, and they're still remaining descendants of Jesus, right? That's not true. Just for the record, in case there's any uncertainty about where this illustration is going, that's false, right? But what's interesting, William Willimon points out, what's most interesting about that story of the Da Vinci Code is not what it tries to tell us about Jesus, but what it ends up telling us about ourselves. We, as humans in the 21st century in America, cannot imagine somebody who was not obsessed and focused on sex. We cannot imagine Jesus living 33 years of his life as celibate and lustless. 
So we create a story, however outlandish, to show that, oh yeah, no, no, Jesus is just like us in that way. Jesus, Jesus must have had a girlfriend. Jesus couldn't have lived his life celibate. Ah, here, yes, yes. I'll get Tom Hanks to play a swarthy professor who knows a lot about obscure art. And I'll use it to show that Jesus had a girlfriend. That tells us more about ourselves and our own obsession with sex and our own, the way that we cannot imagine somebody whose brain does not work like ours. And yet Jesus did. So Jesus was the only one who didn't have to take radical measures, who God did not say we need to poke out our eye and cut off our hand so that it doesn't get thrown into hell. But what did Jesus do? Jesus threw himself whole body into hell on your behalf and on mine. That's what the cross of Jesus was. The cross of Jesus is not just a good man dying. The cross of Jesus is not just somebody giving us an example of sacrifice. The cross of Jesus is a innocent man willingly going through hell so that other people who are guilty and ashamed might go free. The cross of Jesus is Jesus Christ doing more than just cutting off his hand or plucking out his eye. Doing more than that, he is taking the hell that you and I deserve. But even more beautiful than that, City Church, he is taking the shame that we feel. It is no coincidence that Jesus hung naked on that cross. That Jesus was exposed because in that moment, he was feeling something he had never felt before. The shame that haunts so many of us. And he was taking not only our guilt, but also our shame so that you and I might be free from it. You see, City Church, what Jesus offers us is forgiveness for our guilt. But what Jesus offers us is also freedom from our shame. That is the good news of Jesus. That even though we are broken and messed up, and even though the broken and messed up-ness of us is dug down deep in our hearts, especially in the way of lust. You see, Jesus knows what no one else knows about you. Jesus knows every corner of your brain and mine. And for some of us, that's a little bit terrifying. But here's the beauty, church. Jesus knows that and loves and accepts you. Jesus knows all the way that you and I have not lived up to the biblical sexual ethic, no matter what way our sin has manifested. He knows that and turns to us and says, I love you. I forgive you. You are my beloved child. Parents, you know that there is nothing better than when your kid is excited to see you. That excitement is the way that Jesus feels about you. Person, man, woman, who is in the grips of lust, who can't hear a way out, who just feels shame. 
church, if that's your story, Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus cares for you. The struggle for most of us is to believe that. The struggle for most of us is we think that Jesus would forgive a lot of stuff, but the shame that we feel for the ways that we have violated the biblical sexual ethic is great. And so church, the call this morning is a call to believe that you can truly be forgiven. That if you just ask, the Father is more than willing to forgive you, not because of anything that you've done and not by waving a magic eraser to fix everything. No, the reason that you're accepted and forgiven is that Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' absolute lustlessness is counted on your behalf. You don't get acceptance before the Father because of your record. You get it because of Jesus' record, which is good news. Because guess what? You're not perfect. You know how I know? Because I'm not perfect. And so the more and more we begin to see this, the more and more that we begin to believe in the acceptance of God for us allows us to then be honest with one another in the church. Because like I said before, this is not a sin that we can deal with in isolation. This is one of the reasons why we need the church. Because left to your own, if it's just cowboy Christianity, if it's just you, Jesus, in the Bible, your isolation is never going to be able to help you out of these sort of sins. Cowboy Christianity is fine, except when it's not, except when you actually have sin. City Church, this is a chance for us to love and accept one another, to be real with one another. This is why we are starting Samson societies in our church, both for men and for women, because we're serious about this. These are anonymous places for us to engage with one another, to fight together. This is a chance for us to live out who we are, both as those who need acceptance and can show the sort of acceptance that Jesus has shown us to others. But City Church, the good news this morning is that God has not left you alone. This is heavy. This is not the feel-good sermon of the year. This is not the romantic comedy of sermons. I understand that. But I also want you to know that wherever you find yourself this morning, that you are not alone. That the Holy Spirit is here with you. That He is with you and cares for you and wants to engage with you. And not only that, but you have a church here that is filled with sinners who are willing to admit their sin. Me first among them. That's the kind of community Jesus is calling us to be. That's the kind of uncommon family we want to be here at City Church. And so, because of what Jesus has done for us, let us be that sort of uncommon family together. Let's pray.